this is Chris Westfall, and this is the Financial Executive Podcast. As the U.S. slips closer again to the threat of default, one of the ways policymakers talk about delaying the crisis is the use of extraordinary accounting measures. Now, that is not a term you hear in the private market, and I would think if it were to be used, there'd be more than a few red flags brought up by investors and regulators. So in today's podcast, we speak with Justin Marlowe, research professor at the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. Dr. Marlowe studies government finance, and he's written or edited several textbooks on the public financial management and served on the technical advisory bodies of the Government Accounting Standards Board. As you will hear, we quickly jump into why extraordinary accounting measures is not really a thing, how the federal and looming economic crisis will affect state and local governments, and we also get into the weeds of how governments are adopting XBRL for financial reporting. I just wanted to thank you for joining us today. I really appreciate you taking the time. Um, Obviously, there's a lot going on at the federal level in terms of finances and um, budgets. Um, But, you know, what really prompted this conversation was um, the description of what uh, the federal government was doing in terms of the budget and avoiding default. And one of the terms they kept coming up during those conversations was extra, extraordinary accounting measures. <laughs> and, um, you know, being FEI and who we are, it sort of, you know, triggered the idea of what does that mean? Um, and obviously, I don't know if there's a sort of correlation in, in private accounting, but is that a term? Let me start off with a sort of basic question. Is an extraordinary accounting measures, is that a term commonly used in government accounting? Not necessarily. It really is pretty unique to the federal government. And in a weird way, it, it actually doesn't even pertain to accounting measures the way you or I might think of accounting measures. Really, what the federal government is describing there is steps that it's willing to take to try to redirect cash flow, uh, redirect some of the cash that it has on hand, or free up other kinds of borrowing capacity that they can then redirect to continue to finance their operations. So it's it's really all about borrowing capacity more than anything else. Now, the accounting part is important because it comes down to how they're accounting for the cash flow that they have or have encumbered or have available to them. So it definitely has an accounting component, but it's certainly something that's unique to the federal government when it comes to this relationship between the debt ceiling and the resources that are available to finance the federal government's operations, given that the federal government is having to continue to borrow just to make payroll and, and keep the lights on. Is there anything in the private market that would be analogous to this? I mean, talking in terms of cash flow and a borrowing ability and, and all, all those measures? Not necessarily. Mm-hmm. No, there's you keep, in, keep in mind that the, the debt ceiling is, is really a, uh, an artifact of Congress. It's something that Congress has created to try to keep an eye on or perhaps even limit the amount of borrowing that the federal government is doing. So it would be difficult to envision a, a, a private sector equivalent of that if you had a if your board put in place a borrowing limit that the CEO was uh, and the CFO were required to adhere to or something like that, that might be roughly equivalent. But more often than not in the private markets and certainly in the world of state and local government finance, the debt ceiling is 
not really necessary because the feedback from the market is kind of all you need to know how much money you should be borrowing, what your cash flow needs are, cost of capital considerations that come up in the market certainly are going to drive a lot of that question of how much can we and should we borrow. The federal government's obviously in a very different place that way mm-hmm. because it prints the money, because it has the ability to borrow. And as long as people think that it's a good credit risk, it'll be able to continue to do that. They're in a situation right now where they have a, a you know, simply a, a this congressional limit that's been put in place that is exists largely for political and statutory reasons more than any sort of market or efficiency concern the way that a, that a for-profit entity or even, again, a state or local government might think about it. Yeah, and that's sort of leads into my next question, because when you think about this, it, it, from what you're describing, it's a fairly unique thing. Um, you know, the term or the process of extraordinary accounting measures is, is uh pretty unique to the um, federal government and, and uh, uh, you know, a product of a political standoff. Uh, but, but I mean, I would assume, or maybe I'm not wrong, these standoffs often happen at the state and local level. Uh, or do they have similar ability to um, put in place extraordinary accounting measures to avoid it? Or is it, is it, is it apples and oranges? Yeah, there's, there is a, a rough analog, you could say, for state and local governments, especially when it comes to making budgets and, and implementing budgets. I think there's there's two kind of important parts of the context that we have to think in mind when we're talking about state and local governments. You know, the first is that they generally don't borrow for operating needs. Mm-hmm. Almost all the borrowing that happens for states and localities is done for capital investments. Uh, they, they can occasionally use borrowing for cash flow concerns, but that's usually when you have... Uh, borrowing in anticipation of revenues that are going to arrive. You know, so if you're a state government and you have maybe one or two large inflows of uh, income taxes each year, for instance, you might do revenue anticipation notes or commercial paper or something like that to bridge the gap between those big inflows of cash. But for the most part, when states and localities are are borrowing money, it's for capital investments, and so they don't necessarily come into that that same concern about borrowing money just to operate the way that the federal government might. And the second point I think that we need to keep in mind about state and local governments is that they're, for the most part, required to run balanced budgets. Mm. If they don't have the, most most states have a formal balanced budget requirement, either in law or sometimes even in the constitution of the state. And most local governments have some equivalent to that. And so you you have just built into the, the system a, a natural check on spending that is is going to be determined by the amount of revenue that you expect to bring in during a given budget cycle. So that balanced budget requirement really puts a constraint in place that makes it unlikely that you as a state or a locality would have to borrow money just to continue to operate. Now, that happens on occasion. There certainly have been situations where we've had unexpected budget shortfalls. Uh, COVID is sort of an extreme example, but if you go back to the financial crisis of the surrounding the, the Great Recession, there you had in the in the middle of the of the budget cycle major expected revenue shortfalls, especially in things like income taxes and sales taxes, as that recession really took hold. And in those cases, states and localities have a, a range of things that they'll do, mostly just to try to to make it through the fiscal year. Mm-hmm. We've seen everything from furloughs to delaying payments to vendors, to shifting resources out of your capital budget and into your operating budget. There's lots of things that states and localities will do just to kind of limp along and get through the budget year that they're in. When they make the next year's budget, they make the next year's budget with a more realistic revenue forecast. And there's often cuts and sometimes really painful decisions that have to be made. 
So that's, that would roughly be the equivalent of what we're talking about here with the federal government. Although, again, in, in this case, it's much more <clears throat> policy and operational and programmatic decisions around having the resources available to do the things that government's being asked to do in a much broader scale than what we're talking about with the federal government, which is simply having the ability to get the cash that they need to continue to operate the government until this uh, uh, debt ceiling impasse is, is passed. So if, if, if I understand correctly, I mean, I think the argument is that, you know, the states and local governments obviously don't have borrowing or, or don't don't uh, issue debt necessarily, or, or I don't know how to phrase this, but they don't have the same con, uh, constraints as the U.S. government when it comes to budget. But, but you know, at, at the end of the day, this is, a, a, I guess, a political battles in, in a lot of ways, you know, political standoff. So is is it that you don't think these sort of like brink, brinksmanship uh, on, on the budget will filter down to, to lower levels of government? No, absolutely. So th there's absolutely a, a political component to this. Mm -hmm. There have been several instances for states and localities where we've had what we might call late budgets, right, where the budget simply isn't passed on time. And then you get some version of something like a continuing resolution that you would have at the federal level or some sort of temporary spending bill that's passed just to keep the government running for a while. Um, in most states, that's not something you can do for a long period of time. You're required to get to a balanced budget shortly after the end of the fiscal year. But there have been some instances where we've seen extended uh, political standoffs that have led to extended budget crises. I mean, Illinois is probably the mm. classic example of this back in it was from July of 2015 through August of 2017, uh, where the state had no budget. It went through what was really a, almost an 800 day long budget crisis. And during that time, the state, again, delayed payments to vendors, uh, furloughed employees. It was there was a lot of uncertainty and the state really suffered. There were, I think, five or six uh, credit rating downgrades that happened during that time, almost entirely in response to what many perceived as the real fiscal irresponsibility that came with just not passing a budget. And that was entirely a political standoff. It was a, a Republican governor and a, and a Democrat controlled state legislature that just could not come to any kind of common ground. Eventually they did when the Democrats overrode uh, the, the governor's veto, but that took a long time to arrive at that point and a lot of bipartisanship in the legislature to make that happen. So there's almost always a political component to these things when it comes to state, the state and local version of this, because it really is, uh, has its origins in the budget. And the budget is a political process, right? The, the decision of, of what to fund and, and how to pay for it are, are ultimately political decisions. So we definitely see that at the state and local level. And there's no question that what's happening with the debt ceiling debate right now uh, is already starting to make its way down to the state and local level. One of the immediate things that the federal government has done as part of these extraordinary accounting measures is to suspend the, the issuance of what they call slugs, which is state and local government securities which is a particular kind of, of security that the Treasury uses to provide a vehicle for state and local governments to invest um, borrowed proceeds. Mm -hmm. So if you're a, a city or a state and you go out and borrow money tax exempt and you're not ready to put money into a project just yet, you can put money into slugs that are you know, provide essentially a, a risk free investment vehicle for local governments, it becomes then a, a debt obligation of the federal government paid back by states and localities, but it becomes a debt obligation of the federal government. One of the first things that's happened as part of extraordinary accounting measures is the slugs window was closed. And so that's a tool that's unavailable now to state and local governments for the time being. And that 
increases their borrowing costs and limits their options. So this has already started to trickle down to the state and local level. How are they handling that broadly, the, that sort of trickle down effect of the federal government's, um, you know, standoff? Well, there's, a, there's a couple of things. I think in general, what we're seeing from states and localities is, is a wait and see approach. I think most believe that this will be resolved and that nobody's nobody really wants to see a default or some other sort of cataclysmic problem emerge at the federal level. But there's definitely, uh, for the near term, things like I just described, mm. the slugs window, some some delayed payments to states and localities from other federal government programs. Those are important, but they're 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 very manageable. It's it's essentially just finding something else to do with your idle cash, or maybe suspending uh, certain projects that have a strong federal financial contribution to them for the foreseeable future. Those are all things that can be managed. I think the much bigger issue for states and localities is just the uncertainty that this has created. And keeping in mind that this is all coming on the heels of a series of extraordinarily large federal government investments in state and local governments. Right. When you go back to the the uh, the IRA, the the uh, Inflation Reduction Act, the Infrastructure Jobs Act, the IAJA that came out last year, even going all the way back to some of the COVID measures, the CARES Act and so forth, there's a lot of federal government money that is either in the system for state and local governments or is promised to make its way into the system for state and local governments. And the debt ceiling debate certainly puts some question marks on whether some or all of those dollars will arrive. That's the much bigger issue. Again, nobody's doing much to try to manage differently in the wake of that or in anticipation of that right now. But it could become a, a real problem very quickly if the debt ceiling debate continues to to uh, hit the impasse that it's on. So, yeah, that leads into sort of my next question. So if it's my understanding, and please correct me if I'm wrong, I mean, like state, it seems that state and local governments have been like in a really positive position when it comes to their their you know, their, their balances and their budgets over the past couple of years, as you said, given the fair amount of uh, federal government that was pouring into them um, and just in general. Um, how would you describe the the debt and spending debate at the municipal state levels going into like a possible recession? I know, you know, in past in years past, there's always been some municipal crisis or another coming out of fiscal policy. But um, what's it look like right now? Yeah, I think you, the first part that you mentioned is in some ways the headline right now, which is that states and localities are in the best shape they've been in in a long time, at least as it relates to the balance sheet. Uh, rainy day funds, fund balances, those sorts of slack resources are at all time highs. As you mentioned, a large part of that being the federal money that has come in and has allowed states to redirect resources that they would have otherwise put toward, say, capital projects back into their operating budgets and ultimately maybe into savings uh, because the federal money has allowed them to do those sorts of things. So they're, they're in really good shape as the balance sheet is concerned. The income statement, uh, kind of the revenue expense picture is maybe a slightly different story there. There's been obviously a lot of demand for spending that emerged during COVID that really hasn't gone away. And the revenue picture was really strong during COVID, kind of unexpectedly strong during mm -hmm. COVID as, as people essentially stayed at home and, and bought stuff on Amazon and uh, states and localities for the first time during that period were able to collect sales and use tax on goods purchased um, electronically for the most part, purchased through electronic commerce, which was not the case pre-COVID. So that turned out to be a real boon for states and localities. So with respect to the revenue and expense picture, they're in uh, generally good shape. The balance sheet looks 
uh, really good uh, compared to to recent trends. So there, you could argue, um, pretty well positioned coming into the a potential recession. I think there's there's two pieces to that though that that often go overlooked that are worth mentioning. So in general, again, the the sort of slack resources, the liquidity picture is pretty good. The solvency picture might be a little bit different. Mm-hmm. There's certainly for uh, the the typical, maybe the median uh, state or city government, you, know, you have things like pension liabilities that get a lot of attention. For a lot of them, those liabilities are are, are well managed, and they're they they have you know, pension funding ratios at 60, 70, 75 percent, 80 percent. That that's that's a good place to be. That's a very manageable liability going forward. Uh, but then you hear a lot about many of the problem children where that's not the case. The state of Illinois, state of Kentucky, city of Chicago, places like that that have pension funding liabilities that are way below where they should be. That may or may not factor into the discussion about the financial health of a government going into a potential recession because those are liabilities that are 20, 30 years out into the future, but they're important and they definitely are a, a factor in thinking about credit quality, thinking about borrowing costs going forward, those sorts of things. Uh, so there's there's those long-term liabilities that are that are important that do show up on the balance sheet, even though they maybe don't get as much attention as as uh, the the near-term budget deficit or you know near-term uh, liquidity pictures. The other piece that that often goes overlooked is the fact that when you look at a lot of states and localities, there are big concerns about what we might call structural deficits. Mm-hmm. When you look at uh, long-term spending in things like you know state Medicaid programs. Uh, unfunded pension. I'm, I'm sorry. Yeah, we, we talked about pensions, but unfunded infrastructure maintenance being another big, big area. You know, these are these are spending needs that we know are going to happen in the future. They may or may not appear on the balance sheet yet because they may or may not be subject to some sort of actuarial estimate, the way pensions or OPEB, other post-employment benefits might be. But they're definitely there, and we know they're there. And if you project out what we'll need to spend on state Medicaid programs, what we'll need to spend on things like infrastructure maintenance. It looks like a, a growing bill year in and year out, and that's against the backdrop of a revenue picture that's pretty uncertain and maybe even flat or declining in some states. And so in that case, you have the potential for a real gap between revenues that will be generated compared to the spending that we know will need to increase over time. And that's a concern. That's Again, that's not showing up on the balance sheet today, but when you look at future budgets, you can't help but think about the potential for those structural deficits. Since 1931, Financial Executives International has been the leading advocate for the views of corporate financial management. Its more than 10,000 members hold policy-making positions as chief financial officers, chief accounting officers, controllers and treasurers at companies from every major industry. And FEI enhances its members' professional development through peer networking, career management services, conferences, research, and publications. Join FEI today to network with key influencers, understand emerging issues, advocate for corporate finance, and boost your career opportunities. Both individual and corporate membership options are available. Go to www.financialexecutives.org and click on Become a Member, or look for the link in this episode's show notes. So, so yeah, with inflation rates rising and, and, and um, you know, the, the ability of the federal government to step in and, you know, um, I, I guess, fix a lot of the infrastructure problems and the longer term fiscal challenges that you just described, 
what what does that mean for the municipal bond market in terms of issuance, or is that just is that a totally separate question? Or I'm not phrasing it the right way. Gotcha. No, no, that makes sense. That makes sense. Yeah, I've, I hadn't thought of the uh, the. The, the federal intervention piece mm-hmm. as as part of that, but it but it's worth mentioning. Yeah, um, well, let's maybe take that that piece by piece. So certainly, inflation has been a big concern, and really, you know, we think about it. You for the first time in a generation, you have local government and state government leaders that are being asked to do something about inflation. It just has not been <laughs> on their radar right. for a long, long time, and so th- there've been a predictable set of things that have happened there. Uh, Certainly, wage increases. If, if you're a, a, a typical state or a typical local government, you're spending somewhere between fifty and sixty percent of your budget on personnel. And when you have five, ten, fifteen percent increases in wages and benefits, that just takes a really big bite out of your budget. And so we're we're seeing for fiscal twenty four budgets uh, that are either many of them going in place July 1st, 2023, some January 1st, 24, you know, you're seeing for the first time in a long time, projected 20, 30% increases in, in wages and benefits. And that has meant in some cases doing less, mm-hmm. seeing program expansions that were planned come off the table, seeing some capital projects that might've been planned come off the table just because the dollars aren't there. The revenues have not caught up and, and aren't expected to catch up at the rate of inflation. So there's there's definitely been that. There's been some some budgeting and planning around the fact that stuff just costs more. At the same time, for you know, for states and localities, there's a there's some benefits to that, right? Certainly inflation does mean higher revenue collections, mm-hmm. especially when you're taxing income right. uh, or taxing sales, you know, sales taxes that are operating on a on an ad valorem basis. So you do see some some revenue side benefit to it. And you also see some benefit to it with respect to investments of you know, pension funds and uh, pooled cash funds, those sorts of things where in much the same way that inflation can benefit other kinds of investments, states and localities benefit that way. So that does help to offset that a little bit. But the net effect without question is more, uh, you know, more spending and, and a little bit more pressure on budgets as a result of that. We've, we've also seen in some, you know, anecdotally since the inflation really, really took off, you know, roughly a year ago, uh, lots of examples of capital projects that had to be scaled back considerably. Right. You, know, you might have been planning for a, a $5 million uh, school refurbishment project, and now that's going to be more like a $3.5 million project just because of how much more stuff costs in the three months or six months of of planning and, and implementation of those kinds of projects. So we've seen that. And that will likely continue um, for the foreseeable future. On the interest rate side, there's been a couple interesting things that have happened. There's, you know, to put it in context, you know, when the Fed announced the first big rate hike in, I guess it was in February of 22 now, uh, you know, the, the municipal bond market had been performing really well mm-hmm. right up to that point. And then f- following that Fed rate hike, the the market promptly tanked and had its worst year since 1981. So the municipal bond market had its worst year in four decades, in large part because of those increasing interest rates. We've been at very, very low rates for a long time on the tax exempt side. And as rates started to go up, a lot of investors just outflows from mm-hmm. you know tax exempt uh, mutual funds and the like just really accelerated. And so it was a bad year in 22 for the market. So starting in 23, it really had nowhere to go but up. And it's performed reasonably well in 23, in large part because there seems to be a little bit more consensus now on what the future rate hike picture might look like. Right. It might be 
a you know a one more maybe two more increases this year and that's certainly um, benefited municipalities. In the meantime, what happened toward the end of 22 and certainly for the first part of 23 was considerable scaling back of borrowing plans. It, the the projections throughout 22 and certainly for like the first half of 23 were for some of the lowest overall new borrowings in the municipal in the municipal market in a long, long time. So we're just seeing fewer projects done, fewer fewer debt issuances happening. A lot of that too is that a, a big part of the activity in the market that was happening, say for the last three or four years, was a lot of refinancings and refundings. Right. You know, as rates continue to go down, it made a lot of sense to go out and refinance your existing debt. And so as rates have gone up, that refunding part of the market has has all but gone away. And so we're starting to see everything that comes to the market now is sort of new borrowings but it's new borrowings against this backdrop of you know revenue uncertainty and questions about budgets. Um, so it's it's not a good year to necessarily be out borrowing money. And, and the projects that are happening are sort of projects that that can't wait. One last thing I would say too that has happened in response to rising interest rates, which is an interesting thing, is uh, a resurgence of variable rate borrowing. Hmm. Uh, prior to the financial crisis in you know 2008 2009, variable rate issuance was very common among states and localities especially some of your larger sophisticated issuers, you know, your big state housing authorities and uh, tollway authorities, entities like that. They were doing a lot of variable rate borrowing after uh, the financial crisis and in particular after the uh, the, the LIBOR fixing um, issues around that same time. A lot of state and local governments got away from variable rate borrowing altogether. It started to make a resurgence now, as you can imagine, borrowing variable rate if you think that rates are are close to top down, right. you know they have the potential to see some some gain on the other end of that, and so there's been a resurgence of that. And we've also seen some things like uh, you know tender option programs and, and things like that, where there's a lot of voluntary uh, you know buying out of existing debt for investors that that don't want to necessarily sit around and wait to see what's going to happen with rates. So it's spawned some interesting you know innovation and some new strategies. In response to uh, to higher rates, is something that we haven't seen in a long time. Yeah, and along those lines, I, um, I, I just recall, and this ages me a little bit, um, Orange County in the '90s when interest rates started to rise, uh, and um, you know the the way they were affected by that. It doesn't seem that there's any municipalities. Um, or local governments are, are, are getting hit by the, the rise in interest rates. Um, is that just because of the way they the, the way they manage their finances changed, or is it this they become more attuned to where rates are going? Yeah, I think it's I think it's a bit more the former. The in some ways the legacy of the of the the Orange County debacle. And, and there were a few similar kinds of yeah. you know, Jefferson County, Alabama, and a few other instances where you had states and localities that got in trouble because of their use of derivatives and and other sorts of uh, financial engineering tools. The reaction to that from regulators, from a lot of elected officials was simply to say, we're just not going to do that anymore. And that has you know, that's been the case. Uh, the, the use of those kinds of tools just has has all but gone away, and so there's not the same exposure to rising interest rates the way that there was in in the in the lead up to particularly the Orange County case. That's not to say that there aren't other kinds of risk exposures out there. In fact, if anything, at this point now, given the pressure that pension funds are under, and pension funds yeah. have 
have diversified into all kinds of alternative investments. Um, it's risk exposure, not just on the interest rate side, but to you know, currency rate risks all over the world, uh, among many, many others. And so there's a, there's a whole different configuration now of, of risk exposures for states and localities. But that that kind of direct concentrated exposure to interest rate risk that led to problems in the in the past for the most part we've gotten away from that and you could argue that it was an overreaction getting away from it right sort of gotten away from that so i want to i don't take too much time so i have a sort of final question i want to be a a financial reporting uh, podcast without geeking out a little bit on a financial reporting topic and that um you know that would be the sort of the standardization of financial reporting tools in government and the push for XBRL. Um, where are we with that? And what do you think are the changes that will accomplish once the governments move towards the XBRL, XBRL standard? Yeah, we could do several podcast episodes just on this if we if we really wanted, because it is a very big issue. I think so at first, a bit of context, just in case anyone's not familiar. So it, it's often whenever when I talk to uh, audiences outside the government space, they're often really floored to learn that for the most part, the federal government really doesn't regulate state and local government financial disclosure. Uh, in fact, it's it, it's explicitly exempted uh, from the SEC acts by the Tower Amendment of 1975. It's one of the, the, the really unique things about the, the municipal bond market and state and local government issuance and financial reporting generally is that there just there's not the relationship to the SEC the way that you have it in for publicly traded companies and and for even for nonprofits to a degree. So the fact that there's not that direct regulatory relationship means that there's lots of indirect relationships. Of course, a big one is that the Municipal Securities Rulemaking Board, which is the you know the, the main regulator for the municipal market, the MSRB is really regulating muni bond brokers and dealers. Well, the backdoor way that it's able to regulate financial disclosure is it tells brokers and dealers that if they're going to sign off on a prospectus or an official statement or any kind of financial disclosure from one of their issuer clients, that they are responsible for that, that they they have due diligence expectations that come with that kind of information that's coming from their issuer clients. And so that leads to at least some indirect attention to things like accounting standards quality of information, the scope of, of financial reporting that states and localities are doing, especially your larger jurisdictions, the ones who are in the bond market more often and have to contend with those MSRB rules. So that's the context. It's not directly regulated. We have this kind of backdoor indirect regulation. There's two main effects to that, right? One is that financial accounting and reporting practices vary a lot from one place to the next. It varies a lot by state. You know, we have gap for governments. The, the Governmental Accounting Standards Board makes the you know the, makes gap for governments for states and localities, um, but it doesn't have the sort of direct relationship with the regulators the way that say the FASB does um, with the with the SEC, and so you just get a, a, a much a lot more variation in the way that that accounting rules are, are created and executed. Um, across the state, some states require gap compliance from, say, their local governments. Some state governments re- uh, require their own financial reporting to be gap compliant with what the GASB does, and some don't. So you get a lot of variation there. The other important effect of that is that disclosure in this market feels really almost kind of prehistoric, you know, relative to what we see in the private markets, especially for publicly traded companies. Um, if there's going to be demand for new information or for new or better disclosure, it really has to come come up organically from the market. 
It's not going to come from a regulator. It needs to come from investors and others who are demanding that information. And for the most part, the the GASB and the MSRB and others do a pretty good job of responding to that demand uh, from the ratings agencies or from you know the buy side of the muni market or wherever it might be. But it, again, it has to come up organically. And so in the in the absence of a regulator pressing on these issues, you end up with uh, really what we have, which is sort of a, a PDF-driven kind of a disclosure process. And if you've ever done financial analysis, financial statement analysis in the muni market, it's a lot of hand collecting of data. It's a lot of really time consuming and, and expensive analysis to do. So it's a very different market than, than what our friends in the for-profit world are, are used to. So with that context in mind, then we there's two questions that always come up. And this relates to the question of, of the Financial Data and Transparency Act, the, the recent federal legislation in this space. The first question is, is state and local financial disclosure adequate? There's certainly some who say yes, that there's more than enough information out there. And again, because it's a, a largely unregulated market or decentralized market, if the demand is there, it will come up and issuers will provide that information. But then on the other side, there's a lot of of, of proponents for more and better disclosure who say that investors and other stakeholders really don't know what they don't know. Uh, if the information is difficult to get a hold of, if disclosure varies so much from place to place, it's really hard to know exactly what's going on with states and localities. And so a lot of investors just don't even know where to start. They don't even know what questions to ask to say nothing for taxpayers and other stakeholders who care about what's going on at the at the state and local level financially. The other big question is, well, if you are going to do something about it, then what should you do? And is there a way to to you know, a feasible way to try to improve state and local financial disclosure. A lot of folks would say there's really no way to do it. We have 85,000 units of local government. They're all very different, even though they're similar, they're mostly different. There's no way you can have a uniform set of accounting standards or financial reporting standards that's going to apply to everyone. So what we have now is kind of the best we can do. But then there's others, including and especially those who have been advocating for XBRL for some time who say, you know, the public, you know, the publicly traded companies world it also has lots of different kinds of entities. They're all brought into a single standard in, that, in, a, in a way that's flexible and adaptable. And there's no excuse to not do this for state and local governments. So against all of that backdrop, we see the Financial Data Transparency Act, the federal legislation come into the fold. And uh, it was ultimately passed Parts of it remain really uh, to be determined. The FDTA does not specify exactly what kind of information needs to be uh, needs to be disclosed. It doesn't give any kind of a format. It doesn't even necessarily say that it needs to be XBRL. It's kind of implied that it would be, or that that would be the the most natural way to do it. But there's no there's no rule as of yet that says that. That's all kind of to be determined. The state and local government finance community, some part of it anyway. Um, fought the FDAT really strongly, primarily because their main concern is that it becomes the, the sort of proverbial camel's nose in the tent, right? right. That if you get uh, if you if you get any kind of federal involvement in this space, then it's a short walk from that to the federal government then de deciding what type of information needs to be disclosed, and then eventually deciding how it will be disclosed. And before you know it, you have a, a market that's regulated, even though the Tower Amendment. Would have never actually been repealed. So that's a that's a big concern, and I think that's a fair concern. The other side of that, and really one of the big animating factors behind the FDTA, which again is going to 
dictate uh, in part, or at least at least dictate to to the extent possible the the fact that information needs to be made available electronically. You know that grows out of the fact that the federal government, as we were saying a little bit ago, just put several trillion dollars into states and, and localities. And you could make the claim that they have every right to know what happened to that money. Mm-hmm. And the only way to really know what happened to that money is for there to be better, more uniform disclosure, something that's disclosed to the federal government in a way that it's not disclosed now. And with that infrastructure in place that the FDTA is asking for, you could probably do that. It'll take some time, but you could probably have that ability to look across all states and localities in a way that you can't now. The devil will be in the details, as is always the case with any big piece of federal legislation is going through the rulemaking process. They need to make some important decisions about exactly what will be included, what won't be included, what the scope of this will be. Uh, so that a lot of that, again, is to be determined. I think we'll know relatively soon. But the FDTA really uh, struck. It's a, it's, a, it's a technical, wonky, as you were saying, sort of. Uh, disclosure, hmm. uh, you know, a disclosure-focused um, piece of legislation, but it strikes at these much larger issues right. about the relationship between the federal government and states and localities. And it, the question is, do you want to maintain that status quo, or do you think that more federal involvement will be good for all of us? Well, take, you know, just stepping away for a second from the bigger, like, macro issues, I know when the XBRL was implemented on the private side, there were a lot of practical questions about, you know, Cost staffing, are those questions coming up in the government level? Um, definitely, the, the the a big part of the opposition to the FDTA was that it would just the feasibility of implementing it is is really in question. That you know, local governments, especially, you go to your you know small local governments of five thousand people, eight thousand people, you know, they just don't have right. the technical capacity to do this and. Even though there might be kind of market solutions that come up, uh, technological solutions where they can, you know, implement that for you, revamp your chart of accounts, do all the things that needs to be done to make that conversion to an XBRL standard, it still requires some investment of of time and and human capital that a lot of jurisdictions just don't have. So that and that's a fair right. that's a fair argument. Um, some have said, well, the way around that is you you exempt out anybody except the largest government. So if you're under fifty thousand, for instance, you're you're exempt from this rule, and that's something that's being discussed at the federal level right now. At the same time, though, the people on the other side of it say, you know, that's yeah, there's something to that, but it's not nearly as heavy a lift as you might think. There's a group at the moment. Um, over at the University of Michigan, that's been experimenting with this, and they they have a, they're kind of a pilot project going with a, sub, a couple of small jurisdictions, small local governments in Michigan, to walk them through the process of implementing an XBRL standard. And there's no question that there's some work involved, but they're finding that you know the estimates that it takes thousands of hours and is this enormous onerous task are probably a little bit overstated. If you put the right support in front of people and you convince them that it's an important thing to do it's definitely something that a, a committed local government finance staff could pull off if they if they really thought that it was a good thing great oh terrific those are my questions i really want to pre- i really appreciate it. i really thank you for taking the time my pleasure thanks for having me